Welcome to the Lot Carey Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Market in Piscataway, New Jersey, and learning coordinator for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. The Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving weekly podcast grows from a multi-year journey among pastors committed to flourishing in ministry. This is a project of the Lot Carey Foreign Mission Society and is made possible through the generous support from the Lilly Endowment. Learn more about Lot Carey and how it helps churches to extend the Christian witness throughout the world at lotcarey.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. Join us for weekly conversations with pastoral thought leaders who share wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Let's join Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, Associate Dean for Vocational Formation and Christian Witness at Duke Divinity School and the Project Director for Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. Dr. Jessica Young-Brown, thank you for joining us today on our Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. We've been on a journey talking with and working with a number of pastors around flourishing in ministry, and we call our uh, experience Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving because we know that flourishing in ministry does not mean every round goes higher and higher. (laughs) And uh, we um, are convinced uh, that striving and thriving um, work in in, in tandem and sometimes tension uh, toward flourishing in ministry. And we've been talking with lead pastors uh, in this podcast and while you're not a lead pastor, as a clinical psychologist, uh, you work with pastors. Uh, and as a seminary professor, you teach pastors and people preparing for pastors. But before we start talking about flourishing in ministry in that way, can you tell us a little something about what a clinical psychologist does? <laughs> sure. So uh, clinical psychologists as a profession, we are mental health professionals. We, so in, in one way, we're similar to social workers, professional counselors, marriage and family therapists, in that we can provide outpatient therapy, group therapy, couples therapy. The thing that psychologists don't do is really around assessment. Many psychologists though, are really uh, probably more focused on the research side. So studying in general human behavior that could be from the group perspective, from the family perspective, from the community perspective. So you will probably find many more psychologists kind of the the broader scope and research than you will in practice. Clinical psychologists is a subspecialty that really is about the study of the human condition and particularly the study of mental health and, and mental disorder. 
So for me, that looks like um, seeing clients in a small private practice. I also do assessment in service of vocational and career coaching. So helping people, particularly ministers in my case, to think about how understanding their personality helps give them information about the work they might be fulfilled in doing. So I spend a lot of time doing that as well. Um, the other piece that psychologists do is around consulting with organizations. So it could be consulting around how to make a workplace function more effectively, how to build leadership skills, how to engage in conflict resolution, any of those types of things. So why would a pastor need a clinical psychologist? Let me count the ways, Dr. Coley. <laughs> so at the very basic individual level, pastors need therapy. And I'm intentionally making that broad general statement there because um, one, we all need therapy at some point, but pastors in particular are um, sort of trained to orient outward to focus on what other people want to need um, often, and I'm sure this is a piece of what you all are tackling in your program, right? Often that comes at a detriment to the self, right? We know that clergy are just at risk, just as much at risk, I should say, for um, mental health conditions, chronic illnesses due to stress, as lawyers, first responders, um, people in very, very, what we would consider high stress jobs, right? But the difference is if you're a firefighter, people see that your job is stressful. If you're an ER doctor, people see that your job is stressful. If you are a minister, unless you have somebody who's intimately acquainted with that profession, they might think that your job is kind of low impact. Oh, you walk around, you pray for people, people fix you dinner, you preach every once in a while. But really the stress levels are equivalent. And so clergy need ways to manage that stress. Often that looks like going to see a therapist, right? So in that way, they need me. In another way, clergy, particularly pastoral leaders, are running organizations. And sometimes organizations need input from other professionals to help them figure out how to help the organization function in a healthier way. That could be leadership training. It could be um, working with leaders on building their pastoral care skills. It could be figuring out how to integrate a certain age group into what the church is doing. It could be building relationships between other community organizations in the church, right? And so those, I do a lot of consulting with churches. I mean, certainly around mental health, but also around other types of issues too. Any of those organizational issues, sometimes people need support around that. You said earlier, and, I, and it was a broad generalization that you acknowledged about pastors need therapy. So what is therapy and how is it useful for pastors? Sure. So the most kind of traditional simplistic explanation for therapy is therapy is a process for symptom reduction meaning I have these mental health symptoms, not necessarily a diagnosis, although for many people it might be diagnosis, but I have these mental health symptoms, stress, anxiety, worry, depression, um, overwhelm. And I go to therapy 
to help me resolve those symptoms, right? So the goal is that when I'm done with therapy, whatever that looks like, my symptoms are gone or much diminished. A broader definition and and one that I um, sort of more align with is therapy is a collaborative process where we are afforded an opportunity to understand our history, to learn new skills, to figure out how to cope with our lives. And while often there may be a diagnosis, I also encourage people to seek out therapy before it gets to the point where you might feel like you are in serious trouble, whatever that looks like sometimes. And especially, um, you know, I work with populations that are mostly people of color. The vast majority of those are black folks. The vast majority of those are black church folks. (laughs) And so the combination of being black and religious, particularly Christian, often comes with it um, some, some very serious mental health stigma, whether it's due to mistrust of the medical establishment, which is fair, whether it's due to the fact that there are um, fewer providers who might match our demographic variables, or whether it's due to the fact that we have been often raised in a way that suggests that faith is our primary and sometimes only tool for when we are going through. I often run into people who come to therapy after having been suffering for quite a while because they tried everything else first. And that's okay. You know, whenever you come, I'm happy you're here. But I think we as a people can save ourselves a lot of stress and distress if we go when we get those first inklings that something might not be right. And I would love for us to move to a more preventative model around mental health, where just as we think about a a way we take care of ourselves to be going to our primary care physician once a year for a checkup, that we see mental health in that way. Every once in a while, I go for a checkup just to see how I'm doing and check in with somebody I trust. That's helpful um, for you to talk uh, about what you do and uh, when pastors uh, might be able to benefit and to think about uh, mental health as preventive, because I would presume that from your perspective as a mental health professional, that mental health is related to flourishing in ministry. And we have uh, used a metaphor of a tree that has sometimes leaves on the branches, sometimes just blossoms, sometimes the leaves are falling away, and sometimes the limb is bare, but still the tree is flourishing. And that is a way we've been talking about our imagining flourishing. From your experience, uh, as uh, a healthcare professional, mental health professional who works with pastors, what might flourishing look like from your perspective? Mm. So my first response is that flourishing looks like flow. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I teach a class at Virginia Union called Self-Care is a Spiritual Practice. And one of the things we do in that class is really try to rework 
this narrative of self-care. I'm going to kind of conjure an image for you. Hopefully this won't be too long-winded an answer. So often when we think about ministry, we have this image of sort of one pitcher pouring into a cup or another pitcher, right? And we've oft heard the saying, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? This idea that ministry is inherently pouring out And so to take care of ourselves means at some point we take this empty cup and we fill it back up again and then we start over. And the narrative is often I pour into myself when the cup is empty because that's how I know I need to be poured into. And what I like to try to shift people to is a framework where the cup actually doesn't have to be empty in order for it to be filled again. Flourishing is moving to a place where, yes, we are in the process of pouring out, but we are also constantly in the process of being filled up. And so then emptiness is out of the picture. Flow is really about this sense of equilibrium that balances our filling up and our pouring out. And in fact, from that framework, ministry doesn't necessarily even have to be about emptying out, although sometimes that can be helpful, but ministry can be about giving your extras, right? About pouring out from the overflow. And so I really invite people to try to move away from this recognizing emptiness framework, because from my perspective, that's a little too late right? We've already moved ourselves to a place of depletion there. But my encouragement is really to help people to think about what are all the ways I can invite myself to being filled in my everyday experience, in my spiritual life, in my relationships, in my intellectual endeavors, in my physical health? How can I plant filling stations all across my life so I never have to get on eat? A word to our listeners, Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast is funded by the Lilly Endowment through its Thriving in Ministry initiative. We'll be right back with more from the interview. Since 1897, the Lot Carey Global Christian Missional Community has helped churches to extend the Christian witness around the world. We collaborate with indigenously-led communities to bear good and faithful witness to Christ Jesus through ministries of evangelism, compassion, empowerment, and advocacy in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Europe, North America, Oceania, and South America. Together, we are touching lives with transforming love. You too can help to extend the Christian witness throughout the world. Visit us at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for praying for and investing in the good news globally through word and deed. 
Welcome back to the Lot Carey Podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, the Learning Coordinator of Lot Carey's Thriving in Ministry Program. Each week in this podcast, my colleague, Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, interviews a prominent Black pastoral leader to gain insight for flourishing in ministry. Dr. Jessica Young-Brown, can you talk to us about how you understand with your ministry with pastors something about the differences between surrendering your life to Jesus and self-mutilating in the name of service? Because it seems like to me that to surrender and to self-mutilate are two very different things. Sure. Sure. So I'm no biblical scholar, but a point of clarity that Paul was the one who called us to die to self daily. Right. And I think that's important because Paul had his own history that shaped his ministry. And, you know, we have to be responsible interpreters of the text, right. To understand the kinds of things that might've led Paul to say the things he said to the people he said them to, right? So I'll just say that piece there. But the piece about surrender versus self-mutilation is really important. The definition that I like to give people for self-care is that self-care is an act of stewardship, which balances ministry responsibilities with personal needs in conversation with the Holy Spirit. And I think the last clause of that definition in conversation with the Holy Spirit is the piece that we need to hold on to when we're trying to discern, is this surrender or is it self-mutilation? I do think that there is a selflessness, so to speak, that in some ways can be the sign of a healthy ministry, right? But from my perspective, that selflessness is filled up by the activation of the Holy Spirit. And so when a preacher prays before preaching, less of me, more of you, what that preacher is saying hopefully is, God diminish me so that me doesn't get in the way of you. But I think that's different than saying, kill me because I don't belong or use me up because I am nothing, right? I I think our, and I'm, this is an occupational hazard perhaps, but words really matter. And the words that we tell ourselves about what it means to be called really matter. I vehemently disagree with this idea that God calls us in spite of us. I just, don't, I I don't buy that. I think God calls us because of us, our idiosyncrasies, our histories, even the messy parts are all a part of the opportunities that God has to use us. And I think sometimes we become taskmasters and I hesitate to use this phrase, but slave drivers, because we believe that we have to stamp ourselves out in order to be worthy of the call. 
And I, I believe that's a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is, right? If, if nothing else, God has a history of using people that other people thought were really raggedy and they didn't have to get unraggedy to be used. They just had to agree to be used. <laughs> well, I think you, you're, you're helping uh, some listeners today uh, to interrogate some of the language uh, that we have heard, and just because we heard it, it got embedded, and yeah. then just because it was embedded, we believed it. Uh, but I think you've been very, very helpful uh, in in helping us uh, turn it uh, some of these things that we've been we have assumed is expected, or we assume legitimizes pastoral ministry. Uh, one of the things that we have been um, exploring in this journey, this pilgrimage, is what we call a formula for flourishing. And so I'm just interested in, in, in your, how this sounds to you as a, a clinical psychologist who, who works uh, with pastors and others. We uh, are asserting that when a pastor, uh, when a pastor's leadership capacity is taken in consideration with the service context and out of that yields the ministry content, there is a higher probability for flourishing. So it's, it's not like one plus one equals two. It's more like capacity and context yield content rather than equal. How does that sound to you as someone who works with pastors? You know, I think it sounds good. I especially like the choice of the word capacity because capacity is a moving target, right? We don't always have the same capacity all the time. And really considering our capacity demands that we take inventory of what's going on in our lives at any given time. It is certainly our call, our spiritual gifts, our educational attainment, but it's also going through a global pandemic, caregiving for a parent or a loved one dealing with the chronic illness, right? All of these kinds of personal variables that impact how much we're able to do. And from my perspective, I think it's so important that clergy attend to themselves as people and incorporate into their understanding of what makes, quote, good ministry. I think sometimes clergy set up these models of success that are based upon um, like external standards. And while those can be helpful from a heuristic perspective, external standards inevitably don't account for the realities of our own lives. And so my hope is that people's understanding of capacity includes those idiosyncrasies. You said capacity is a moving target. Mm -hmm. 
for you to say it's moving um, invites us to think uh, with a little more dexterity uh, about capacity. So talk to us a little more about what you mean when you say it's moving. Sure. So I have to pay homage to my therapist here who has really helped me to dig into and dig out of this um, distinction. So the distinction she presented to me was the distinction between ability and capacity. Ability is kind of what you're able to do when you're at your best, right? Capacity is what you're able to do right now with what you have at your disposal. So for a concrete example, for many of us, dealing with COVID impacted our capacity. The stress of worrying if you're going to contract this virus, the stress of not knowing if you need to wipe off your groceries and wearing a mask everywhere and seeing people all around you die, right? Kind of limited for many of us our ability to do the things that we normally would do. And so our ability didn't change, but our capacity in terms of what we had the resources to do shifted. And so because the environment and our personal um, experiences shift, in, in my reading of that word, right, capacity also shifts because it takes into account how our humanness muddies the waters of what we're able to do. What are some of the things that you have observed that give pastors who are flourishing joy? Mm. I love that question. Um, So my immediate answer is connection. And that could look lots of ways for lots of people. Certainly connection with our close family and our romantic partnerships, friends, those kinds of things. Um, I also find that the clergy I encounter who are happiest in ministry also have great professional connections and great spiritual connection. So they really are embedded in, one way to say it might be communities of practice. Sometimes that's a denominational organization. Sometimes it's programs like the Thriving in Ministry programs that both of us are a part of. Sometimes it's not even necessarily ministry colleagues, but professionals who are doing like-minded work. It could be community agencies around their church or, or community that they're particularly involved with and connected to. Um, and so people have those um, collegial connections. And then spiritual connections. Clergy who are happiest are actively engaged in spiritual disciplines. And not just, this is important, not just for the sake of output, right? A a spiritual practice that is broader and deeper than sermon preparation or Bible study preparation is really important. Um, Those seem to be the things that are kind of the foundations of flourishing and what I've seen. I've also seen that the clergy who are happiest really find time to play, to move away kind of from a task-oriented framework and to do things that are fun just because they are fun, whether or not they have an identifiable outcome. 
I'm going to ask now a more deficit question. Are there some key things that you would advise pastors to stay away from if they want to flourish in ministry? John Townsend, who's the co-author of a book called Boundaries, which I highly recommend if people haven't already read it, says every pastor needs a good set of boundaries. And the folks who are most trouble, who come to see me, have poor boundaries. They have trouble with their yeses and their noes. And they make decisions about their yeses and their noes based upon external factors as opposed to internal or spirit-led factors. Um, and when you, for me, poor boundaries are often the foundation for this broader set of unhealthy behaviors, whether it's not taking care of your body, whether it's overextending yourself, whether it's um, struggling with setting, um, setting processes for delegating in your ministry context, right? Poor boundaries really lead to this host of other issues. And um, often people end up feeling like they're working themselves to the bone, nobody appreciates what they're doing, and they're resentful of all the other people who are taking the easy way out. <laughs> uh, I think you have helped somebody uh, to at least recognize some important questions they need to ask about boundaries. You wrote a book that was published uh, recently entitled Making Space at the Well, Mental Health and the Church. Can you give us an idea of what were you trying to help us to know uh, by your effort of writing this book making space at the well? The book is an attempt to give the church both language and process around how to make mental health one of the dimensions through which we understand the people in our communities. In the introduction of the book, I talk about the fact that the book is not about mental health ministries necessarily as it is about ministry for mental health. And that distinction is really important for me because I think sometimes we um, go into crisis mode when we think about mental health. And so the conversations in the church are all about what to do if something bad happens, what to do if somebody becomes suicidal or what to do if somebody has erratic behaviors, right? And we should have those conversations, let me be clear. And there's a chapter about that too. But I think there's a broader conversation to be had about how do we understand, talk about, sit with, minister to the everyday realities of people who have emotions and have a need to express them. Some of our, we've been talking about language, right? Some of our language in the church, I think accidentally, sends messages that diminishes the experience, experiences of people who don't have it all together. And the reality is for many of us, at some point in our lives, we haven't had it all together, right? And my invitation is, what if we could just 
come to church and be messed up and that would be okay. And the community can support that. And then we're not messed up forever, right? I think it's about opening up our conception of who deserves to be in community. Jessica Young Brown is a, a counseling psychologist. She's a seminary professor. She's an organizational and congregational consultant. Thank you for sharing in this conversation today about flourishing and ministry. You've been a blessing to many of us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, a weekly podcast from Lot Carey as we listen in on conversations with prominent pastoral thought leaders. Join us next week for a conversation with a new guest and fresh insights. Wisdom from the Black Church for the whole church. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving is produced in partnership with Good Faith Media. Music by Makita McQuarrie. Share the word with those who need to hear it. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, wherever you get your podcasts. Also listen online at lotcarry.org. Thank you.